one. I'm going to pray, and then we will start. God, we give you the glory for what you're doing in this world. I want to thank you that you have invited us into your plan to make all things new. And thank you that you've given us your word, that you caused it to be written, that you've preserved it for thousands of years. God, I pray that you would give us a love for this this book. Open our hearts this morning to what you may have to say. Open our ears, our minds. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, I got no cute intro story, so let's just go. John chapter 1. Verse 19. Here we go. Y'all there? Yo. Anybody need a Bible? Did I say that already? Now Don has it. All right. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, here's the story. John the Baptist, he's on the move. This is the guy that in, in chapter 1, verse 5, 6, and 7, or 6, 7, and 8, the John, the gospel writer, says, here's this guy. He's come as a witness. And so he's, he's baptizing people. He's preaching. He's telling people to repent. And he's becoming to be, he's getting to be very popular. People are starting to come to him. He's got disciples, students of, of his own. He's starting to make a little bit of headway in the Jewish community. And so the leaders of the Jewish community, they want to know what's going on. And so they send some people. They themselves don't go, but they send their peeps. And their peeps get there and they're like, all right, what's going on? Because you see, you have to understand that the Jewish leaders, the the ones in charge of the temple, they made lots and lots of money. They were very, very, very wealthy people, the priests, the, the high priests. And if anything started to threaten their way of life, if anything started to move people away from what they were teaching into some other teaching, they, the radar went up and they had to investigate. And so they send people to John and they say, okay, buddy, who are you? And John freely confesses, I'm not the Messiah. I, I am not the one. They said, all right, well, you know, you know, you're baptizing. What's going on here? Are you Elijah. And because, see, understand, Elijah, he was kind of a wild man, too. He lived in the woods. He wore animal clothes and a leather belt. John would have would have looked like Elijah, the description of Elijah. John says, you know, I'm I'm not Elijah either. And they ask him, well, well, then who are you? Are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, Moses mentions this idea that the Lord will send a prophet like me. John says, I'm not the prophet either and so they're pressing him who are you see the messiah you're you're preaching to repent the kingdom of god is at hand but but the scriptures say that elijah will come back before the great and dreadful day of the lord and you're not him and you're not the prophet that moses talked about what authority do you have to be baptizing people what authority do you have to start this movement and this is what john answers 
verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John is the voice pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is the word, it tells us. John is the voice. And this whole idea of making straight the path, making straight the way, um, the people that would, would have heard this in the first century, they would have known that that was, the, that was the saying to clear the road, to get all the obstacles out of the road so that, so that commerce can move down the road. John has come and he's saying, listen, I have come to make the path clear for the Messiah. I have come to make sure that you do the work in clearing what you need to clear out of your life so you don't obstruct the work of the Messiah in your life. John has a message. He says, listen, return, come back, stop sinning, repent, make whatever you need to make clear so that you can accept what the Messiah is about to bring. John is introducing a new exodus. The exodus story is about God saving his people from oppression and bondage. God is going to do the same thing again through Jesus, but in a bigger, deeper, more profound way than history has ever known. Things are about to change dramatically in the world. Verse 24. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent to him questioned him, Why do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. John is baptizing. Baptism at this point isn't something new. When, when, People who were not Jewish converted to Judaism, they were ceremonially unclean and they would have to bathe. This idea of baptism isn't a new concept all of a sudden for Christians. The Jews have been practicing ceremonial cleansing for, for thousands of years. And they're asking, what, what authority do you have? And John's like, listen, my, my baptism is just a symbol. All right, I, I'm just, I'm just, it's just this, this dunk and I'm telling the people to repent. It's just a symbol of what's going on in their heart. But there's someone that stands in your presence among you who is way greater than I am. And he is, and his baptism is going to be a baptism of substance and power. And John says, that, I, I love this verse. He goes, he's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In Hebrew tradition, a slave, if you had a slave, the slave can do anything you wanted if you were the master. If you were the master of a slave, you can have the slave do everything and anything. They were a slave. You owned them. They were your property. There was one job that was under a slave. There was one job that you would not consider your slave to do. And that would be to take the sandals off of people's feet. Even if, even if that slave was, was washing the feet of your guests that walk into your house, they would come in, they would sit in the chair, they would remove their own sandals because the removal of the sandals is below a slave. And then the slave would wash the feet. John says, I'm unworthy to perform even what a slave would not consider doing for Jesus. John begins to recognize 
who he is in relation to Jesus. John begins to point people now to who the Christ is. He starts to lead people away from himself and point them to Christ. Go to verse verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and asked and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Very unique statement here. In Revelations, Jesus is considered the Lamb. This is the first time in the scriptures that he is actually, the, the term the Lamb of God is used. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is, 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 could be referring to the Passover Lamb. That, that the wrath of God will not come on people because of this is God's Lamb. This is the Lamb that will be sacrificed. Old Testament, they had the scapegoat. The, the, the priest would lay his hands on the top of the goat's head, confess all of the sins on that goat, and they would lead that goat out of, out of the town, into the wilderness, taking the sin with them, uh, freeing the people from, from the uh, consequence of their sin. John is referring to Jesus as the one who is going to take away the sin in the world. And he says, he says and, and, and the one who has come after me surpasses me because he was before me. John is Jesus' cousin. He was born first in this culture. If age, with age came authority. Age came, with age came your place. You were higher than people who were younger than you. John says, listen, he comes after me, but he surpasses me because he recognizes that Jesus has always been. Jesus was before him. John is starting continually to point people, his followers, his disciples, away from himself and point them toward Jesus. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen. He continues to point to Jesus. John is on this divine mission. John has come to be a witness. John has come to testify to the divine knowledge that he was given from God. God told John, listen, when you see the spirit come down upon him and rest on him, that's the one. That's the chosen one. That's the Messiah. And John says, I have seen this happen to this man, Jesus. This is God's chosen. I testify that I have seen it. That was revealed that what that what was revealed to me by God is coming to fruition. Again, John points Jesus and says, This is the one. It's not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. But Jesus 
the spirit of God rested upon him. And he is the one that will baptize beyond my symbolic baptism of water. But he will baptize with power and authority in the spirit of God. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I love that. Like, you know, what do you want? We, 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 we read it like, what do you want? I read it like, what do you want? And Jesus like walking around, you know, he's kind of, he just took the big dunk. He's like, what do you want? And, 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 and <laughs> these, 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 they finally get it. Like John has been saying, there's the Lamb of God, there's the Lamb of God, he's, he's Messiah, not me, not me, there he is. And these guys catch on, and, and, they, and they, they decide that they're going to start following, and it's literally, they follow Jesus. In the Greek, the Jesus walks by, and they just kind of go, all right, let's do this. And, and they start following him, and listen, listen to what they say. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Okay, let's work through, work through this with me, okay? Lamb of God, Messiah, Takes away the sins of the world. John's like, he's the one. I saw the spirit of God rest upon him. He's the one. He's telling his followers. He's the one. He's telling his disciples. He's the one. These disciples are like, they start following Jesus and they're walking behind him. And Jesus turns out and says, what do you want? And they're like, uh, um, where are you staying? You, 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 see, you see, I think Jesus completely catches them off guard. We think, Rabbi, where are you staying? No, come on. It's, it's like Lamb of God, Messiah. Can you do better than that? Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And they're like, where are you staying? You see, I believe, I believe that a bad halftime show is better than a good soccer game any day. I'm sorry. But, but I, I believe that they, <laughs> what's wrong with you people? I lost where I was. What am I doing here? <laughs> I believe that they wanted to ask Jesus a different question. A deeper question. Jesus asked them, what do you want? And I think it caught them off guard. And we're going to see why I believe that, that they just, this isn't an honest response from them. This is, oh my goodness, the rabbi spoke to us. Uh, where are you staying? Verse 39. Jesus replied, come and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's brother, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, were from a town called Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. <laughs> I, I okay, so Jesus is like, a little side note, I'm sorry, but Jesus is like, 
ooh, here is an Israelite where there's no deceit. And humble Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? You don't get it? Never mind. Okay, so let's go. Jesus begins to identify his disciples. Jesus spins around with a smile on his face and says, what do you want? And they're like, uh, where are you staying? He goes, come on. I'll show you where you're staying, where I'm staying. And he, and, he, and he takes them and they spend the day. Jesus, the rabbi Jesus, is beginning to find his disciples, find his followers, find his students. You see, any rabbi worth his weight in the first century always had disciples, always had people that he was teaching. And see, I believe that the biblical story is our story, and our story is the story of the Bible. And we throw around discipleship in the evangelical world like it's like, yeah, you're supposed to be discipled, you're supposed to, have, you know, you're supposed to make disciples and be discipled, and we have discipleship programs, and we have discipleship this. But I would contend that we have no idea what discipleship really is in a biblical context. What Jesus would understand discipleship is something very different from what we understand as discipleship. And so what is it? What would Jesus have recognized as a disciple? What was Jesus trying to do with these men that he is calling? He says, listen, come, I'll show you. And he says to the other guy, Philip, follow me. He invites him to follow him. One of my favorite scholars, Ray Vanderlaan, um, he would say, follow me as we enter into the story of the Bible. And, and I, and I have, to, have to give him credit for much of the scholarship that we're going to talk about from here on in is based on all of his research. And so what is a disciple? Jesus begins to choose these men from, from a little town, a little town that had no college, had no real, real um, authority, had no big commerce. I mean, Bethsaida, it, it's, it's a town, it, it could be translated as Fisherton. It was a fishing town. And there's probably a couple hundred people there. But Andrew and Peter and Philip and James and John, these disciples come from this little rinky-dink little town that, that has no real um, value to the rest of the region, except it was a fishing town. So what is Jesus doing? He's calling his disciples. In and around Galilee, says Jesus went to Galilee. And in and around Galilee, you have to understand, this is where the, the Jewish idea of discipleship has taken root. It's a predominant place in the ancient world. This is where people would come to be disciples of rabbis. And so rabbis would go there to be available to people who wanted to be disciples. So what is a disciple? Biblically, what is a disciple? Not evangelically, what we think but what would Jesus have considered to be a disciple? There's a few characteristics we have to look at. First off, this culture is a culture of community. People lived together. They worked together. They played together. They had leisure time together. They ate together. It was all in the context of community. They, they would worship together. Their faith was a communal thing. Nothing was done really on an individual level. But the life that God had called them to was lived in the context of community. There was no sacred and there was no secular. There was no like, oh my goodness, we can't read Rolling Stone. We have to read CCM because that's what Christians... No, no, no. Everything was sacred to these people. Their, their work, their play, their hanging out, their doing nothing, their meals. Everything was sacred. And it was all done in the context of community. 
And so a disciple would have understood that to be a disciple, you would live in this context of community because it was a cultural thing. It was the way they, this was the way they did it. See, in our culture, we focus on the individual. And listen, as long as my individual thing is going good, I will take a step and enter into community. But as, long, but as soon as it gets a little intense for me and, and I'm feeling a little cramped, I'm going to step out and get my individual back on. And community becomes a, a luxury for us. Community becomes like a choice that we might come into and we might come out of. It's always first individuality. And then if there's time, we feel like it. We're not threatened. We enter into community. But for this culture, it was community first. And the individual came last. It was all about the health of the community. Everybody was deeply, deeply communal. And so would the disciples have been. A very communal oriented, we're hanging together, open and honest and transparent. But not everyone in the context of community became a disciple. So what is a disciple? Now understand, faith plays a major part of what these people, how these people live. And there would be synagogues in the town. The synagogue was a foundational place where people would meet socially. They would meet for worship. They would have, um, that would be a place of teaching. It would be a place of wrestling and discussing with the Bible, uh, discussing the scriptures. It was a foundational place for people to come and meet. Now, in the synagogue, they had the scrolls. The scrolls were the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And maybe you had another scroll, the set of scrolls, that would be the Tanakh. And that would be the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the prophets and, and the books of wisdom. And, and so these were housed in the synagogue. In fact, the very presence of the word of God in the synagogue made a synagogue a synagogue. That, that, that the word of God is actually here, housed in this building made this building a very, very special place. And it was a big deal. They would unroll those scrolls and people would dance in front of it. It would be like me holding up the Bible and you all would just play it, busting out dancing and then come running up and trying to kiss it because they considered the word of God to be way beyond special in their life. It was the word of God. It was God's word. It was the word of God. It had power and it breathed life. And, and, and they, would, they would just... They would just Embrace it in a way that we just don't understand. And so the presence of the scriptures in these people's lives was so, so important. And so too would it have been with the disciples. But not everybody who loved the scriptures became a disciple. So what is a disciple? How did you become a disciple? What did it mean? Attached to the synagogue there would have been a school, Hebrew school. And there would be an elementary school. It was called Beth Safar. And this little elementary school, you would send your kids when they were about five years old, and they would start to learn to read and write. And they would start to, to and, and their text was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they would learn how to read 
the Torah, and they would learn how to write. And then, and then as they got a little bit older, they would learn how to, to interpret the text. They would learn how to, to debate over the text. And so these young children at a very early age, they weren't taught just the Bible stories. They were taught how to argue the Bible stories. They were taught what it actually means in their life. They would be taught how to debate with other people what it actually meant to live this story out. And they would go through this till about they were till about um, twelve or thirteen years old, learning and writing. They would memorize huge chunks of the Bible. Whole books would be memorized by that. Not just reading it, they would memorize. Not just you know one verse, entire books, entire chapters, before they were twelve or thirteen. By the time they got to be twelve or thirteen years old, they would graduate. Most of them. Most of the boys would then go into their family business, whether it was fishing, carpentry, stonework. They would go into the family business. The girls at this point, they would, um, they would probably be, be uh, betrothed to be married by 12 or 13 years old, 14 years old. And they would enter into the cultural norms for young women at that age. But, but if you had the intellect, if you had the passion to go on with your education, there was a secondary education at the same synagogue. It's called Beth Midrash. And this is, this is where you would go to continue your education. But very few people would continue because now you'd be not only engaging the Torah, you'd be engaging the Tanakh, all of the other Hebrew writings in the scriptures. And you would, you would um, memorize entire books, continue to memorize them. You would have to have a passion for the word of God and a commitment to the word of God. And very few at this point had what it took to enter into their secondary education. And you would move through this and you would learn how to wrestle with the scriptures. You would, you would debate with other rabbis. They would come and they would be in the synagogue and you would be tested and, and you would have to debate and you would have to um, talk about why you believe that and how do you live that and what's that look like every day. And this could last for years. Very few people made it this far. But these are not disciples yet. And you would graduate and some scholars say that maybe 1% of those people who graduated from the secondary education would move on to become a Talmud. If you translate Talmud from the Hebrew, it means a disciple. And so you've, you've memorized chunks of scripture to 13. And now you've got, the, you've got the passion, you've got the commitment, you've got the intellect to just, to just engage not only the Torah, but the Tanakh, all of these other writings. And, and you've gone through that and, you've, and you've, you've completed that education and now you've got the passion and the commitment and the fire in your belly to move on to become a Talmud, a disciple. But what's next? What, what, how do you become the Talmud? Talmudin in plural. A disciple is a student, is a learner, and for us, in our mindset, when we are students, we're on a quest for knowledge. And we hope that we, hope that we can start asking better questions so we can learn more and we can, we can gain knowledge. We want to search for answers. We want better understanding. But a disciple was much, much more than just on a quest for knowledge. If you wanted to be a disciple, you would search for a rabbi to teach you. You probably go somewhere in Galilee. And you 
would, would, would come to that rabbi and this is the one that you wanted to be taught from. This is the guy. And it was not only did you want to know his knowledge, what he knew, but a Talmud wanted to be what that rabbi was. How that rabbi lived, that's the way, that's the way you wanted to live. What he was passionate about, that's what you wanted to learn how to be passionate about. How he worked, how he played, how he rested. You wanted to be him. You wanted to be everything that he is. And you would give up everything. Everything in your life would go away. And you would be honed in and focused on becoming what that rabbi is. You would leave your family. You would leave your friends. You would leave everything to be that rabbi. You see the commitment level of a disciple. Your whole life would change. This is all consuming at this point. The last thing you think about when you go to sleep was this rabbi and what he was doing. And the first thing you think about when you wake up is what the, how do I live like that rabbi today? In fact, scholars have said that they would follow them, the disciples, and watch them go to the bathroom because that's how much they wanted to be like the rabbi. And we're like, ew, but no, no, no. This is serious. This is an all-consuming passion to be like the rabbi. This is a Talmud. This is a disciple. And so the question begs for us. Are we really disciples? Do we have the willingness to give up everything? to Be like the rabbi Jesus. Do we have the passion and the commitment to give it all up? to follow hard after, 24-7, to be like Jesus. Believing in Jesus does not make you a disciple. Reading your Bible 30 minutes every day does not make you a disciple. Going to church every Sunday does not make you a disciple. Reading your Bible 30 minutes every day, going to church every Sunday, and believing in Jesus. The combination, the trifecta, does not make you a disciple. An all-consuming, every breath, every thought, every moment of every day to be like Jesus. This is what makes us a disciple. That you have given everything up to follow Christ. Everything the last thing you think about before you go to bed is, is how do I live like Jesus? And the first thing you think about in the morning is, man, how do I live like Jesus? This is what a disciple is. Most of us, man, we just graduated from elementary school. Discipleship was no joke. You lived it 24-7. And sometimes it would be 10 or 12 years of just like following the rabbi, like, like just, just always, always in the sense of community, loving the scriptures. But by, by, by the time they were at this point, when they've graduated from being a Talmud, they would be able to recite the entire Old Testament by memory. So in the first century culture, you wanted to be a Talmud, you would find a rabbi and you would, you would, 
come to this rabbi and you would say, Rabbi, can I follow you? I want to be your disciple. Can I follow you? And the rabbi would, would think a little bit and he would ask you questions. And he would want to know how much of the scriptures do you already know? And he would want to know about your life. And he wanted to know if you've had the passion. If you want, he would want to know if you have the commitment to, take, to be what it takes to be a disciple. And he would, maybe you would stay with him for a few days. It would be like this entrance exam. And he would question you and he would ask you and you would have to, you would have to do pretty much an answer, pretty much anything that he said because the rabbi is looking for the best of the best. He's looking for the elite. He's looking for the most committed people, the people with passion beyond what is normal. This is the people that the rabbi would take. This is like Ivy League on steroids. Because only the best of the best would be accepted by the rabbi. And then you would study for 10 or 12 years. And at the end of it, the rabbi would say, now you're ready. Now you go and make disciples. That's biblical discipleship. You have given your entire life learning the scriptures of God, memorizing the scriptures of God, and being who your rabbi is. Nothing else mattered. This is the discipleship that Jesus would have understood. This is the discipleship that Jesus was calling people into. And so finally, at the end, when you were accepted, Rabbi would say, okay, come and follow me. Saying, I think you got what it takes. I think you can be like me. So started your journey. Jesus is looking for disciples. Jesus is on a quest for students, for learners. See those two men that asked him, uh, where are you staying? I believe that they wanted to ask the rabbi, can we follow you? You see, they were John's disciples. John was not a classically trained rabbi. These guys that were following John, they did not make it out of um, their, their elementary education. They did not have what it took. They did not have the intellect. They did not have the passion. They did not have the commitment. They were following some crazy man that lived in the woods and ate bugs. And so th these men, they wanted desperately to say, Jesus, can we follow you? But they're just like, uh, where are you staying? And what did Jesus answer them? He knew what they wanted. He said, come and follow me. Come on. Let me show you where I'm living. Jesus calls everyday, normal, subpar, unintellectual, unpassionate, undisciplined people to be his disciples. He calls them out of their trade. One of the gospels says that they just left their nets and they follow Jesus. Jesus said, you follow me. They leave their nets and they follow him. They did not have what it took to be a disciple. They did not have the intellect or the passion or the commitment to be a rabbi. They couldn't even be taught by a rabbi. They were in their father's business. They were the normal people. They were blue-collared people. They were people just doing what they're doing every day. Jesus came to them and said, you follow me. Essentially telling these normal, everyday people, I believe you have what it takes 
to be like me. They never asked Jesus to follow him. Jesus went out looking and said, I believe in you that you can be who I am. I bet sometimes we all feel in our life, nobody gets us. And they just, they just don't understand what I'm going through, where we're coming from. And, and, and maybe, maybe you've grown up or even now, people, people, it just feels like people don't even believe in you. Believe what you're trying to accomplish. Believe in, in, in the direction that you're moving in. And you feel subpar, you feel substandard. And now you bring that into church world and you sit in church and you're like, man, I, could, I can never be like those people. I don't know chapter and verse. I'm, I'm just not spiritual. Sometimes I doubt. Some, I, sometimes I just don't get it. And you haven't read your Bible in who knows how long. And, and how can I, and you just feel like you're nothing. Like you haven't even made it out of elementary school in the things of the faith. And it causes you to disengage from the communal life that God calls us to. Because maybe you're embarrassed. Or you just feel, feel stupid. Man, if they only knew the real me. Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Jesus calls us, the rabbi calls us to follow him because he believes in you. Jesus believes that you can do this. Jesus believes that you can be who he is. He believes in you. And listen, it's going to take work. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take putting one foot in front of the other and actually having some movement in your life. But Jesus believes in you that you can do this. The disciples weren't all passionate and all like they followed Jesus and everything was like, oh, it's all good. No. I mean, I mean, I mean, Jesus, the last, let's think about just the last supper. He's like, all right, when are you guys going to betray me? And so they just go on through the Last Supper, man, and they're just, their bellies are full of wine and food. And, and Jesus is in the garden. He's like, my heart is crushed. Can you pray with me? And like, yeah, sure. You know, and Jesus goes out. He starts saying, and they, they fall asleep. They lacked commitment. They lacked passion. They lacked discipline. But Jesus looked at them and said, I know what you can become. You can be like me. Jesus believes in us that we can be disciples, that we can live this life that he's called us to. Here's the truth. You can choose not to be a disciple. Many people do. Many people choose and reject it. I'm not going to do it. But you cannot say, I can't be a disciple because Jesus says, I believe. The creator of all things, the king of kings says, I believe you can do this. And so the question is, Jesus calls, not just 30 minutes a day, not just on Sunday morning. Jesus calls us to be Talmud, to 
disciple. He doesn't call lightly. He calls because he believes that we can do it. Do you believe Jesus believes in you? Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know why you believe in us, but I am grateful. And so now, energize that truth in our hearts that we can go and live as disciples, live it every day, all day, that we can be consumed with following the rabbi, that we would not take this relationship lightly, understanding that in all things you love us, in all things we have grace. Thank you that you know us, you know our junk, you know our shortcomings, you know our failings, and you still believe in us. Help us. Help us to engage that truth. Amen.